This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. In our world, the population is estimated to have reached 7.3 billion people. 2.7 billion people use the internet, and the top four usages for, ser- uh, for searching information, so Google searches and things like that, um, Wikipedia probably, um, media and news, shopping and social media in that order. 184 billion emails are sent every day. And we know things that happen in the other side of the world immediately in the way that no other generation has been able to do. And we are able to communicate across the world for free. Um, And in our world, income equality is, is at its highest level for the past half century. So the ratio between um, how much the bottom 10% earn and how much the top 10% earn has increased from 1 to 7 to 1 to 9 in 25 years. And for the UK, it's estimated to be 1 to 12. So that means that the top 10% earn 12 times more than the bottom 10%. And the wealthiest 1% of the world own half the world's wealth and all of the world's production resources. That's quite something, isn't it? 1% of the world own half the world's wealth and all of the world's production resources. And in our world, although scientists debate the figures, um, it's pretty much certain that we have changed our climate and at an unprecedented rate by human activity. And many say, and it's probably true, that we are approaching, closely approaching a tipping point of runaway climate change. I think what's even worse about the figures is that we don't actually know. In a way, like if you knew, it would be a bit more secure, but basically they don't know. We, they know we've altered the climate in a way that we don't fully understand, and we don't really know what the ramifications of that are. Um, we're warned of catastrophic effects such as accelerating sea level rise, rises, um, droughts, floods, storms and heat waves. And these will impact some of the most poorest, world's poorest and most vulnerable people. So it's, again, the poor that are probably going to suffer. Uh, It will disrupt food production, water supply and threaten vitally important species, habitats and ecosystems. And we already know about the bees. Um, In our world, uh, we have passed peak oil production. And although clean energy um, production is increasing, and actually it's increasing quite a lot, it cannot meet the demand set by modern consumer standards in the West. So even though we're increasing um, clean energy, uh, there's no way that we can produce enough clean energy to reach the same levels of energy usage that we have uh, got used to in the West. And that's all of us, you know, it's your iPods, your iPads, your computers, your all those gadgets, everything that you plug in, you know, the the energy, the usage that I have is, um, I did not actually look up these figures, but I did see them one time, compared to what, say, my grandmother used, is unbelievable. More and more, we use more and more electricity all the time. 
Um, in our world, about half the food produced for human consumption worldwide is wasted. In low-income countries, most food is wasted in food, actual food production and initial food storage, particularly through heat and pest control. But in industrialised countries, most is wasted in retail and by consumers. The total food waste by consumers in industrialised countries, which is 20, 222 million tonnes, is almost equal to the entire food production in sub-Saharan Africa, which is 230 million tonnes. So we're wasting as much food as the entire food production in sub-Saharan Africa. And a lot of that is so that we can have, um, you know, it's from the supermarkets to us and from us to our dustbins, if you see what I mean. So a lot of it is to do with the fact that we, we want carrots that are completely straight and potatoes that are non-bobbly and um, it's all got to be packaged in a particular way so a lot of food is just thrown away just because it doesn't look the part um, and then you know they've got a best before date and as we know that ends up in skips um, a lot of it anyway so in our world we also have a refugee crisis approaching that of World War Two. So 270,000 people have risked their lives this year travelling in packed boats over the Mediterranean into Europe with um, over 2,000 dying in transit already and that figure is rising. Davis Cameron's answer to that is to spend £7 million on new razor wire in Calais. Actually he's slightly changing his tune but not quite. He changed his tune yesterday yeah. on the news, if you heard the news yesterday. Yeah, but he doesn't, he's not going to do anything about the refugees in Europe. He's only going no. to do no. about people in refugee camps just outside Syria. So he's not actually going to do anything about refugees coming to Europe. Um, in, two, in our world, in 2008, the financial crisis led the UK government to bail out British banks at an estimated cost of £141 billion with exposure to liabilities over £1 trillion. And partly as a result of that, the European countries are facing austerity measures that are eroding the welfare state with the biggest cut since the end of World War II. So it's, I've been looking at this actually partly because I've been thinking suddenly about a pension. Because I don't think that there's any guarantee that any of us are going to get a state pension and the government are just bringing in new laws, so it's a compulsory workplace pension. But for many people working in the movement, it's not compulsory for us, because we earn so little. But I sort of think, I suddenly saw that news and I thought, ah, oh, I think I can see what the government's doing. I don't think we can rely on the welfare state in at all, this generation at all, in the way that we used to. Um, so, um, and people are asking for something different. I think the next generation, as I said last night, is more outward looking and thinks more globally than previous generations. And change is in the air. So I asked um, the source of all useful and helpful information um, about this uh, particular issue um, and to help me with my talk, which is my dad. <laughs> so my dad's a, a journalist, a writer, and um, he's been a political and economic commentator for some of the UK's leading newspapers um, since the 60s or 70s. Yeah. Um, well, it's the 60s, actually. 
And in the 70s, he wrote a book on oil, which was the defining feature, really, of the 1970s. And in the 1980s, he wrote a book on the financial revolution, which is the defining feature, really, of the 1980s. So my dad, I suddenly realised, I've suddenly come to appreciate those books, which I I have to admit I haven't read, but I now want to read (laughs) at the age of 37, um, because I thought, oh, well, that's it. The world that we're living in now is partly a creation of the conditions that were set up in the 70s through oil production and the 80s through the financial revolution. So I suddenly realised my dad really had his finger on the pulse, you know, um, so I was asking about, well, what's, what's the state of affairs now? Um, what book would you write now? You know, that was a key feature of the 70s, uh, and that was a key feature of the 80s. What are you going to write now? And he said, well, actually, he thinks the old world is reaching the end, and um, that the neoliberal economic system, which is defined by, um, or characterised by, uh, the production of short-term prof- profits, over long-term sustainability. So that economic model um, is seen to be flawed. And he said, well, you know, it has achieved many of its goals. You can't completely... I think I have a tendency to want to completely throw out neoliberal capitalism as the work of the devil, you know. But he said, actually, it has achieved many goals because what it does, because you're pursuing short-term profits, you have produced a lot of very cheap consumer items um, for less money and um, produced yeah. produced a lot of wealth, um, some of which has gone into healthcare, so we've got a better life expectancy. And we're experiencing better lifestyles um, in many countries, particularly in Asia and South America. Um, however, he said, you know, the system is reaching its limits, and it's reached its limits globally as well. So it's, it's helped people in Asia and South America, but Africa is a completely different issue. And the problems about neoliberal um, economics and neoliberal capitalism is that, uh, well, first thing is, as we've seen, it encourages wealth inequality. So it's very interesting in the world today because um, the vast majority of investments are now made in speculation rather than production, which means that wealthy individuals prefer to gamble on ventures that offer the chance to earn big profits quickly such as the stock market and the futures market and real estate and currency trading and derivatives. And it's all got very, very complicated and very abstract. And what that does is that only a few new jobs are created while concentrating the wealth of society in the hands of fewer and fewer individuals who are making that, um, who who are investing in speculation rather than actually making a thing that other people benefit from, And the other thing is that the big money is also to be made in technological advances, which also concentrate money into the the hands of the few who have the capital to fund new projects and the education to innovate new ideas. So it encourages wealth inequality. And it also encourages buying on credit or debt, um, which has been encouraged, well, really since the 1980s. And this causes individuals and nations to dig themselves into debts they cannot hope to pay. And um, I was reading an article about that and how it's combined with the ageing population, at least in Europe and America, with the young shouldering shouldering the burden of the previous generation's debt. So um, the young people, like you lot, in the world are ending up receiving 
the jet of your country. And, and there's fewer and fewer and fewer of you. Which is actually why a lot of um, the arguments about the refugee crisis, particularly in The econo Economist that I was reading, uh, saying that um, in a way what we should do is really welcome the refugees into this country because they're young and they've got a bit of drive and we desperately need more young people to work. And also the problem with neoliberal capitalism is that the environment suffers. So capitalism strives for ever-expanding markets and ever-increasing consumption and production on a finite planet. And it's clearly not going to work um, forever. So its insatiable drives for profits results in corporations wielding their influence and money and power to get around or to limit environmental laws or regulations. So, you know, and we've seen it all over the world, corporations sort of massaging things, putting money in the right hands, using their power, using their influence to um, get around environmental reg regulations. Um, or just move countries, that's the other thing they do. So some people say it's going to be the fact that oil and gas are running out that causes major problems in the world. Some say it's the fact that water and metals are also um, going to be affected, particularly in climate change. Well, water and climate change and metals, well, we're using them up. Um, very rare metals, um, particularly in the use of modern computers and technology. And when you get a, um, a resource, a natural resource that's running out and there's competition for, you will get conflict. Um, actually, the Buddha saw this himself. He said, he said it's like fish in water too shallow, struggling with one another, fighting with one another. And in a way, that's what we're facing. The water is receding and we're like fish in water too shallow, struggling for air, pushing each other out of the way. Um, and a lot of the world conflict, actually, if you trace it back to the root, comes down to um, a, a, a conflict over resources. Kennedy and I were watching a documentary the other day, weren't we, about um, the whole thing with Osama bin Laden. The Crisis of Civilization. Yes. <laughs> the documentary is called The Crisis of Civilization, and the whole thing about how it's all to do with oil, you know. In a way, it's sort of dressed up to be to do with religious differences, but actually a lot of it's to do with oil. So what we're left with is a sense of imbalance, um, an imbalance between the rich and poor, between greedy corporations hungry for profit and natural resources that have to pay for it. Um, we're seeing a social shift and no one quite knows where it's heading. So I think one can either get a little bit depressed about that Oh, one can see it is actually absolutely fascinating and interesting and something is changing. Like, I do think something is actually changing in the world. People aren't, it, it can't go on like this. It physically can't go on like this. Um, and, uh, you know, we're at a point where there's like a deep satisfaction and a re-evaluation in society. So another thing we could ask ourselves was, well, what would be the new book that my dad has to write? So we could, we could have a competition, it could be like a fairground of guess the name of the teddy bear. <laughs> anyway, he's going to think about it. He's going away on holiday for the express purpose of thinking about what the new book is. <laughs> so where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Well, governments have some role to play. 
regulating corporations and protecting the environment and protecting the rights of individualism. Oh, of individual. That's interesting. I said that. <laughs> <laughs> protecting the rights of the individual. Um, but uh, in a global world where communication is instant all over the world, uh, the traditional role of the government is weakening. So corporations, as I've said, can work around government rules. And I wonder if in some ways we've lost the faith in a possibility of an honest government who has the interests of their people in mind rather than their own power. So I've been absolutely fascinated by the role of Jeremy Corbyn, because even if he doesn't get elected to be the leader of the Labour Party, and even if he, um, uh, you know, even if he never becomes Prime Minister, or even if he kind of disappears in a puff of smoke now, which I think possibly Tony Blair would quite like him to do, um, in a way he's changed the face of politics. So um, he's, he's popular because he's genuine and considered, and he's passionate rather than being well-polished and well-presented. So I was, I was listening to a programme on Radio 4 actually about how, um, and they, they were showing how politicians' speeches have changed since the rise of Jeremy Corbyn. So it used to be very, very kind of polished, um, very kind of level, um, well-clipped, well-argued, but a bit distant and a bit cold. And now they're having to change their speeches so that they sound like they're actually answering a genuine point and they're thinking about something and they're not just coming out with the latest smooth offering. And one of the things that Jeremy Corbyn does, which is absolutely incredible, is that he answers a direct question. He doesn't just give a kind of uh, pre-rehearsed spiel that's not quite related. If he are, he's asked a yes or no question, he says yes or no. There was this wonderful interview where someone said, said um, so you just answered that question, yes. He said, yes, I've answered that question, yes. So you are a politician and I've asked you a direct question. <laughs> direct answer. He said, well, yes, you asked me this question, and I've, I've said yes because that's what I think. You know, <laughs> and uh, you know, and the whole po face of politicians, for, uh, politics has changed through this because politicians are realising actually that's what people want. They want uh, someone who's actually thinking about things and is genuine, and and considers issues. <coughs> and thousands go to listen to Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, they're packed out and queuing around the streets. He's got 13,000 people signed up as volunteers, and he has no corporate funding whatsoever. He's funded by ordinary people, with the average donation being £23.50. pence. <laughs> it's completely unheard of in the face of politics. And it was interesting, he had a, he had a rally, I think it was in Manchester, and um, they had a, 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 a speaker called, a speaker introducing him. Which I also thought was really interesting because the speaker was Haley from Coronation Street. You know, it wasn't like some really big person in um, politics. It was Haley from Coronation Street, and um, she said of his rise in popularity, she said, "Welcome to the vibrant mass movement of giving a toss about stuff." <laughs> and I thought that was very interesting. I thought, well, that's what it symbolised. Um, there seems to be, this seems to be the solution, is a vibrant mass movement. It's community-based, not from the top down, from the, from the bottom up. And it's not looking to central, centralised sources to sort us out in the way that we used to. Um, 
We sign petitions on Facebook rather than expecting the government to look out for our interests. We sort of we sort of don't expect the government to look out for our interests unless we have collected a few thousand signatures, and then we think the government might listen. So the way that we're operating politically is completely changed. And um, yeah, this this uh, documentary that Kennedy and I watched, the crisis of civilization, put together a lot of the kind of global issues and said. In a way, the answer is community. It's local communities working together. And that comes up again and again and again as the solution. So it's working together on the basis of shared values, making choices about how we live and work, what we eat, what we buy, without waiting for governments to sort us out, and supporting each other in a simple lifestyle. So I think the other thing that's very interesting at the moment is this response to the refugee crisis. So what happened immediately is that people got together, usually via social media, to take stuff to Calais. And there's um, many Buddhist centres that are organising collections to take to Calais, including in Sheffield Buddhist Centre. So these are untrained and uninvited people just getting together with a van, asking their friends for donations, tents and clothes and things, um, and just going over there to help. Um, it was a German couple who set up an Airbnb site for refugees, matching up spare rooms with people in need. And um, then the government sort of came in on it, and the local authorities have, 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 have um, joined up with this <coughs> refugee Airbnb site, and, um, and they're using it as a way to rehouse people. So they've got, when I looked at it last, they had 400 rooms. Uh, they were processing 400 rooms at that time. And there are these very moving pictures, as some of you will see, of, of people waiting in, in train stations in Germany, handing out supplies and food, of football matches with great big banners saying, Refugees Welcome. Um, there's the, the newest thing is that people are, are giving lifts to migrants who are walking from Budapest to Austria. Uh, and they're just getting together and just saying, jump in, I'll give you a lift. And it's very interesting development. I don't think I've ever known something sort of so spontaneous. And people can act in a collective way quickly now because of social media. Um, and uh, I find it very moving. But I also think there's a bit of concern there, which we were talking about over the breakfast table the other day, which is the concern is it then takes the pressure off the government. The government doesn't need to give clothes and food and help out refugees because local people are doing it. So I do think there's a bit of a balance there. There's a, there's a slight concern. Um, and that's what the government tend, is tending to do. So they put more emphasis on personal recycling so that they don't then have to question the fact that we're producing so much waste um, at the uh, industrial level, at the production level. So there is, in a way, it's very, very good. And in a way, I, I'm also a little bit concerned about it as well. But what about us? What do we have to offer as Buddhists? What's our response? <clears throat> so uh, I mentioned before that Vadika and I ran a retreat at Adastana looking at that Buddhist response to the world's world issues, particularly from uh, Sangharaj to Dr. Ambedkar. And he's written uh, a book, uh, The Buddha on Wall Street, which I really do recommend you read. It's very interesting, very easy to read as well. And it's interesting because I, I was doing a bit more research on Dr. Ambedkar and what Dr. Ambedkar has to say about the way society is structured. So Dr. Ambedkar drafted the Constitution of India, 
on the basis of Buddhist principles. So there is a constitution. It's the finest constitution, I think, probably in the world, the constitution of India. So it's a pity it's not put into practice a bit more, but, you know, it's there. And uh, he um, he's a very, very educated man, very considered, and, you know, Buddhist. So how does... How did he understand the way that, that, that society uh, needed to move forward? Um, and he and Vadaka um, sort of structure their argument using a particular sutta, uh, Discourse of the Buddha, um, called the Chakravati Sihanada Sutta, the lion's roar on the turning of the wheel. And it all starts, it's a kind of, it, it's, it's a story, it's a kind of, parable, if you like. And it starts with a monarch who fails in his duty to feed the poor. And on the basis of not looking after the poor, theft arises so that, so that the poor can feed themselves. And on the basis of theft arises punishment. And on the basis of punishment arises an increase in violence, taking up arms, lying, and the degeneration of ethics. It all starts from not looking after the poor. Um, the way Ambedkar talks about it is he says moral force fails and brutal force takes over. So that's what happens in this sutra and it kind of degenerates and degenerates and degenerates. Interestingly, one of the marks of the degeneration of society is that um, women and men think, become sexualized much earlier. Just an interesting aside. Um, so society generates, and then at the lowest point, a few people break the cycle. They see the causes of suffering in society, and they decide to practice ethics. And it's really interesting kind of moment, because what happens is it's so awful that they all go and hide, basically, and then they kind of come out, and then they, the first thing they do, they don't start building something, they don't start um, any kind of practical action. The first thing that they do is they rejoice in each other's merits. So they come out and they say, oh, I'm really glad you're alive. I think we should practice ethics. Yeah, I do too. I think that's really great that you want to practice ethics. So it starts with rejoicing in merits. I thought that was such an interesting point about the way kind of society flourishes. You have to start with rejoicing in merits. Anyway, so you've got this, this terrible picture of a descent into chaos. And I think you can't take this to... It's not like a kind of prediction of the Buddha's. It's an interesting start to the sutta because it's one of the, the discourses of the Buddha where he doesn't, um, he's not asked to give a teaching. He calls all the monks together and um, tells them this parable. So it's a spontaneous teaching that he decides that he needs to give. And I think it's good to keep it in context of, so he's talking to monks that have um, been living in a time of warring independent states. So they've known war, they've known conflict. Maybe they have the same sort of anxieties about the future of their societies that we do. And the Buddha calls them out to tell them something. He's trying to give them a message. Um, and uh, the good thing about Pali suttas is that um, it, it, the message is clear because it's got a refrain that he keeps coming back to. And the, and the kind of thing he keeps coming back to is make of yourself a light. Becoming an island, being a refuge, you're being yourself a refuge, with no one else as your refuge, with the Dharma as a refuge, with the Dharma as your refuge, with no other refuge. So he's saying, um, make of yourself a light or an island, 
And um, be your own refuge. Don't rely on external things in society. And then he goes into what he really means by that. <clears throat> he, tells, um, he tells the monks what to really rely on. And the first thing is he says is rely on mindfulness and awareness. So I think in this context it's not just about mindfulness of the present moment. Um, there's, a, there's quite a lot of criticism actually from the mindfulness movement, which I think is an also a very interesting kind of topic of exploration. And, and one of the criticisms is that uh, if you just focus on your own, uh, just being mindful of the present moment, then um, you can just, you don't try and challenge society anymore. You just have this illusion of being out of the flow of the mad chaos of society. And then, um, as, as Zizek says, you're the perfect counterpart to uh, neoliberal capitalism because you're not going to make any changes. You're just going to be aware of what's happened with this illusion that you're not part of it. So you have your little peaceful space um, because you're very, very aware of your present moment in the moment. But actually, you're just letting society carry on in its kind of mad dance with this illusion that you're not part of it. So I don't think the Buddha's talking about just being aware of the present moment. I think he's saying being aware of the, the significance of the present moment, of the experience of yourself and of what's going on around you, and um, looking at the cause of suffering, seeing that the cause of suffering is uh, un unethical behaviour. And then he says, make concentration your, and energy your source of long life. Concentration and energy. So he's saying um, it's not the newest face creams or plastic surgery or the ultimate pure diet. I think there's this idea in Western society there's going to be this ultimate pure diet in which case, and, and exercise regime, where you're going to basically have optimum health and live forever. Which doesn't work. Um, so he's saying, actually, that's not going to be the source of long life. The source of long life is going to, going to be to become engaged with life, to become interested and inspired and to do what's really important to you, to be fired up about something and then live from that. So that's the source of long life. Um, not, yeah, the newest face creams or plastic surgery or whatever the ancient Indian equivalent of those things were. Bat poop. They used to put bat poo on their face. Anyway. <laughs> um, and he says, make ethics your beauty. That. If you want to become beautiful, don't look for makeup and dieting and obsessive control about your figure. If you want to be beautiful, become ethics. Ethical. And... Uh, as um, Roald Dahl once said, you can have a crooked teeth and a wonky nose, but if you think good thoughts, you'll shine with beauty. So you can have a beautiful straight nose and perfect teeth, but if you think unkind thoughts, your face will be ugly. And there's a little picture. <laughs> so yeah, so make ethics your beauty, an ethical life. And he says, make meditation your happiness. Uh, the the uh, kind of opening out of positive emotion and awareness and uh, expansion and relaxation of being. Make that your happiness, not uh, the latest experience or item that you can buy on eBay. 
And he says, make metta and the other Brahma Viharas your wealth. So don't look for um, money and accumulating material possessions, but look for love as well. So if, you, if you're in a state of, uh, if you're in a state of metta or karana, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, you're wealthy. You feel abundant. You feel wealthy. And you don't need anything else to make you feel abundant. That's where real abundance comes from. So you're rich. If you're in a state of metta, you're rich. And he says, make spiritual liberation from greed, hatred and delusion your power. Not controlling over, uh, not trying to control other people or control resources or control uh, your environment around you. But control your own mind. That's where real power comes from. Sorry, Roger, can you just say the beginning of that sentence again? Uh, make spiritual liberation from greed, hatred and delusion your power. Yeah, so you're not trying to control other people. Um, he said that to, you know, to, to um, gain control over your own mind is more than beating hundreds of thousands of people in battle. If you control your own mind, then you have power. So what's he saying? He's saying that um, it's the com a community, it's a community of people working together that turns the tide. A small, pe small group of people acting together on the basis of ethics can make a difference, taking responsibility for each other. So one of the things that characterises society at the moment is that the emphasis is on personal choice, not responsibility. So decisions are governed about um, the ideal being that you have your own choice about what you do rather than you're responsible for what you do and you're responsible to the people you're with. And I, you're with, and I think that um, that's why I think it's very significant that the sutta starts, the, the tide turns with rejoicing in merits. Because there's something about rejoicing in merits where you have to kind of open your eyes and look around yourself and see yourself as part of a community working together. So it's a bit like a football team. If you've just got one person who's just trying to get all the goals themselves, like me, yay, great, I've got a goal, it's not going to work as a team. Whereas if you, um, I know nothing about football, <laughs> <laughs> I realised that I totally avoided any kind of collective team sports my whole school education. But anyway, um, I believe that if someone scores a goal, the whole team rejoices because it's all of your goals. You can pass the ball as well. Yeah, otherwise it just won't work, it will it? You have to. Yeah, I've watched it, I've watched it. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, it's that, it's rejoicing as being part of community rather than um, just seeing it all down to us. And it also really, really works against uh, and that kind of cynical defeatism, despondency. You know, they didn't all kind of hide and think, oh no, the world is rubbish, look how terrible it all is. If they'd have done that, they wouldn't have acted. What they did is they re they didn't sort of look at the kind of negative, this is all terrible. And, and you know, according to the Sutta, it really was terrible. They were hiding in caves. Um, but in the Sutta, they turned, the first thing they do is actually, instead of getting into this kind of self-absorbed despondency, they look at each other and they say, oh, great, great. You want to join me. You want to be ethical too. Oh, I'm really glad that you're alive. Um, and that's the kind of start of them working together. 
And they also see the cause of the degeneration of society. They see that it's unethical behaviour that's the cause. Um, particularly not addressing duty towards the poor. So what they're seeing there, in a sense, is that, um, that not looking after the poor is making a division of society, as not acting, seeing society or humanity as a whole, but looking after self-interest alone. And that's the division which makes it possible to not look after the poor, because you just think they're other. So that small community um, does something different. Um, a little phrase from uh, Reginald Ray. They decide to reverse the normal logic of the ego. The normal lo logic of the ego is when times get tough, I'll look after myself. And they say, no, we're going to look outside of ourselves. We're going to act as a community, looking to real sources of satisfaction, ethics, medita meta, meditation, energy and spiritual practice. These are the real source of happiness. And so the, the answer is, is this funny combination of having to look within ourselves to cultivate ethics, meta, meditation, energy and spiritual practice, but also working together on the basis of those deeply held values. And that's what's a bit different about it. It's not just saying we're just going to act as a community. It's saying we're going to act as a community from the basis of deeply held values that are held by the individual. So this is this kind of idea of a smaller community working as individuals who hold common, deeply held values is also a method that Bhante recommends. So he talks about um, the need for a nucleus of a new society. So like Ambege, he said you can't change the world by force or by violence. That causes more problems than it solves. You change it by embodying something different. Not alone, but as a community. So it's a community of people embodying something different. And he said that message will spread. He said it, expansion um, comes of committed, from committed teams of individuals. So he emphasises that we can't do it alone, that we have to work in teams. We need the support of others. But also we can't be effective if we're only one voice. And I think we're seeing that in society again, that um, it's communities that seem to make the difference, transition towns and communities gathering together uh, to rise as one voice um, that simply cannot be drowned out. And I think we're really seeing this in the refugee crisis, actually. You know, David Cameron wasn't going to do anything. And then there's been such a popular request. Um, they've had uh, two times the amount of the signatures that they needed as a petition to government to ask them to sort out the refugee crisis. Um, so in 1984, uh, Sangharachta gave a very, very interesting talk called Buddhism, World Peace and Nuclear War. So he's talking specifically about nuclear disarmament. But I think the message that he gives in that talk um, is, is applicable now to many other issues. He recommends keeping up pressure for nuclear disarmament on our own government, on governments of other countries, on individuals we meet, on family and friends, and also on ourselves. And he says it needs to be peaceful pressure, but if necessary, um, mass civil disobedience. <laughs> So he's really saying, you know, we need to keep up that pressure collectively, but also on ourselves as individuals. And he says it's not 
enough to sort of sit on the sidelines waiting for a new world to happen, but we have to act together to create it. And he said, and sometimes that's just about telling people the facts, um, you know, again and again if necessary, telling people what's really going on. I think we've seen this in the refugee crisis as well, you know, the popular press um, was giving an impression, a very, very misleading impression. And again and again, the facts just had to come out again and again and again. And he says that knowledge leads to understanding, understanding to sympathy, and sympathy to love. And he recommends teaching the Metabhavna on a nationwide scale. It's interesting, he doesn't recommend teaching mindfulness on a nationwide scale. Mm -hmm. it's, it's meta, that's what the world needs, the Metabhavna. I really like this, I kind of had this idea of kind of a kind of guerrilla army sort of going out there, teaching the Metabhavna with wild abandon. And there's something that happens as well. I mean, you know, it's not just about if we act together, we will have a greater voice. I think there's something much, much, much more mysterious at play when people act together. And this something is, um, we've started to call it in the movement, um, the Sangakaya, which is that when people act together, something more than the sum of their part, its parts happens. Something comes into being that's of a different order. And it's something you can't really describe unless you felt it. So there might be, um, you might have inklings of it when you've decided to get together on a particular project. And, you know, first of all, it's a few individuals and you all come together because you've got a shared interest. And something, you know, things go well, there's problems that you solve or whatever. But then something happens within that where a kind of magic occurs. And suddenly things just open up and become easier. And random, completely wonderful events happen that just makes it all possible. It's not something I can really kind of talk about. It's an experience, an experience. And I get it sometimes when the order comes together, particularly uh, the last international convention in Bodhgaya. Something was happening that was more than the sum of its parts. It wasn't just about, you know, English and um, Indian and Australian people getting to know each other. Something actually was emerging. That was very exciting to be part of. But this kind of mysterious happening only comes into being on the basis of deeper values. Because there is a near enemy to the spiritual community. So something that looks like a community but isn't. And that's the community that only looks after itself. Um, and we're also seeing this. You know, there's the rise of a positive group. There's a rise of a positive community acting with benefit in the to benefit the world, but there's also um, the rise of um, ethnic nationalism, particularly. So it's not just nationalism within borders; it's nationals within identifiable groups within borders, and um, religious extremist groups. And you can really get a sense of that also in the refugee crisis of people basically saying, "We don't want you because you're foreign." and you've got a different religion, and some countries even asking for refugees that are Christian rather than Muslim. So, you know, there's that, there's the shadow side of the, of the group, if you like, the negative group. Um, you know, and they're very popular, that kind of, that kind of uh, right-wing right -wing group, because they give a sense of belonging, they give a sense, you know, society's changing at this unprecedented rate, We'll look after you. We'll look after you if you hold the same values. 
So one of the things that um, Panti said in World Buddhism, World Peace and Nuclear Wars, some wonderful quotes, and one of them is, we have to identify ourselves with humanity rather than with any particular section of it and love humanity as ourselves. We have to feel for the different national communities and the different ethnic and linguistic groups the same kind of love that we feel for the different limbs of our own bodies. So we have to identify ourselves with humanity as a whole. So there again we've got an interesting combination of having deeply held values as an individual, working together as a community with people who share those values, um, and having love for humanity as a whole, not letting that split us off from other people. And Bhante also talks about the danger of even good causes that can become a way to give expression to purely personal feelings of resentment and frustration, which have no con uh, connection with the issue itself. So he's also saying we have to work on ourselves because, you know, you can get a global issue that just becomes hijacked with your own personal feelings of resentment. And I'm sure we've also seen that in um, any kind of political movement that we might have been a part, a part of. Suddenly it's like something comes in, there's this really negative emotion and you're thinking, hang on a minute, I thought we were kind of doing this for love of all beings, but actually it can get hijacked by something really quite negative. So the task is to act from positive emotion, from ethical skillfulness, awareness and love. Um, and Bhatti says these are developed as an individual. He talks about, he talks about um, the development of the individual, um, which is uh, the development of indivi the individual is defined by um, creativity, awareness and ethical responsibility. So we have to develop as an individual and then come together to work uh, collectively. And we have to embody those qualities of the individual. We have to become an example ourselves. So in, in the same talk he says, um, we have to become an example of impartiality and detachment, an example of love for humanity as a whole, an example of genuine devotion to the achievement of world peace by non-violent means. An example of sanity and compassion, which though it may fall very far short of the sanity and compassion of enlightenment, is yet more nearly commensurate to the strength of the opposing forces between which we stand and with which we have to deal, than is at present the case. So an example of sanity and compassion. I find that very moving because when I read that I thought, oh that's what I, that's my ideal for the order. That's what I'd like the order to do. I'd like them to become an example of some sanity and compassion um, in the world. Yeah, living from a sense of common humanity. And I think we can do it. I don't think we always do it. Um, but I think that's the potential. And that's what I really believe in, which is why I do what I do with my life. Because I think actually we can create that example in the world. And it reminds me of the, the very famous story of the four sites, um, which uh, you may remember is a story about the Buddha. Actually, to be honest, in the Pali scriptures it's the previous Buddha, but we'll, we'll forget that. Um, the implication is it happens to all Buddhas anyway. Um, so the Buddha sees someone who's um, sick, someone who's old, someone who's died, and it shocks him. It deeply, deeply shocks him. Um, 
and it makes him question everything about the way he's living his life. Because he sees that nothing's permanent, nothing is solid at base, nothing is changeless. And what does it mean? What does his life mean in the face of old age, sickness and death, in the face of suffering and impermanence? And then, um, and then he sees another sight. So I'll read you the little extract. I think it's very beautiful. And as he was being driven to the pleasure park, the prince saw a shaven-headed man, one who had gone forth wearing a yellow robe. And he said to the charioteer, What is the matter with that man? His head is not like other men's, and his clothes are not like other men's. Prince, he is called one who has gone forth. Why is he called one that has gone forth? Prince, by one who has gone forth, we mean one who truly follows Dharma, who truly lives in serenity, does good actions, performs meritorious deeds, is harmless and truly has compassion for living beings. Then the prince said to the charioteer, You take the carriage and drive back to the palace, but I shall stay here and shave off my hair and beard, put on yellow robes, and go forth from the household life into homelessness. It's an incredible story because at that moment he saw something. He saw a different way of living life. Um, he saw someone who was living by different values, shaving off hair and beard, wearing different clothes. Someone who's living um, in serenity, doing good actions and performing meritorious deeds living for non-violence and truly having compassion for living beings. And he saw it so strongly, he couldn't go back to the palace. And I think that's our task in a way. Our task is to become a fourth sight. I don't think we necessarily have to shave off our hair and beard. But, um, or even particularly wear different clothes. But we have to embody something. We have to embody that skillful life. A life of non-violence and compassion. And the question for us, in a sense, is how we do that. So we, how we do that is we develop values. We develop the values that we hold important to ourselves. We become an individual, in uh, Sangrachta's use of the term. Um, creative, uh, ethically responsible and aware. And there's so many ways in which I could talk about how to do that. There's all the different paths, the threefold path, the eightfold path, the six perfections, the five aspects of the Dharma life. But in a way, when I was thinking about this, I sort of wanted to take a slightly different tack, in a way a simpler tack, which is um, something I'm working on in my own practice at the moment, which is uh, a path of surrendering. A path of surrendering to the deeper values within myself. Because I think all people have those deeper values. You're not trying to become someone you're not. Um, it's almost like if I could just listen to the light within myself, then allow my life to unfold from that, everything will be okay. If I could just have the courage to listen to what's of deepest value, what I know to be of deepest value, And if I could really do that, then I would naturally turn away from um, the mundane sources of health and beauty and wealth and power and happiness and turn towards what's really of value, love, 
meditation awareness, um, the transformation of consciousness. There's this lovely, um, lovely sutta of the Buddha's where he turns to his disciples and he says, You are the children of my breast, born of my mouth, born of the Dharma, fashioned of Dharma, heirs of Dharma, not heirs of material things. There are these two kinds of giving, the giving of material things and the giving of the Dharma. Of these two kinds of giving, the giving of the Dharma is foremost. And I think if I could just have the confidence to live from my sort of spiritual inheritance, if you like, of those, um, to see myself as an heir of the Dharma, the heir of truth, the follower of truth, not the follower of material things, then in a way something quite special could happen. Uh, the rest of my life would throw to flow from that. And um, I think for me personally what I've been reflecting on more and more is my the ramifications of my own ordination and surrendering to my own ordination. So sometimes we talk about here ordination is a kind of depth charge in your psyche. Something is laid down which you don't really know the implications of because what you've done is you've turned your whole life to what's of most deepest value in the universe, not just for myself. I had this very strong sense in my ordination that this wasn't just about me. Um, it's not. It wasn't just my ordination about me and my own life. My turning of my my energy and my creativity and my whole being towards the three jewels set up something of quite deep significance, and that's what I've got to live from. And. Um, you know, obviously not everyone's been ordained here, but I think there is, you've all had that turning about, you've all turned around to say, no, there's something that I really, really value, and that's how I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to live it from uh, mundane sources of happiness. Actually, I'm going to become something quite different, in a way that we don't even understand. Um... And when I've been, the way I've been thinking about this recently is actually the difference between conventional and natural morality. This is a very, very profound teaching. I don't think I've really understood it. So every year, or twice a year, we study the survey of Buddhism, if you live at Tiratnaloka, which is a, one of the joys of life, as far as I'm concerned. I never get bored of the, the survey. And it's one of those wonderful books where you think you've understood it and then you realise that you haven't at all. <laughs> I've understood something. I've got some handouts that I give, but I can talk about things. But um, one thing that I struck me on this last retreat, which is just finished, is this difference between natural and conventional morality. So Buddhism distinguishes between that uh, conventional morality, which is um, etiquette and um, respectability in society. It's a society's norms and natural morality, which is something of deeper significance to the way things are. So natural society, uh, sorry, um, conventional morality helps society to function along certain lines. And this varies from society to society. So it's the, the kind of cultural norms that helps society sort of function. So for example, there's norms around sexual behaviour and marriage. Um, uh, the kind of biggest example of that. But there's also a sort of smaller example of etiquette, you know, how one eats, how one dresses, how one behaves in public. 
And basically, conventional morality works okay as a whole. Usually it kind of runs, it's a way, you know, society kind of understands each other and gets on with each other. And you, you know that if you go to a different society where they've got a different conventional morality and you just make it totally foolish yourself. You know, you don't really understand what's going on because you don't understand their system. But, um, you know, so as kind of a relative system, it, it works okay. But um, sometimes it goes against natural morality. So, for example, blood sports, things like female circumcision, capital punishment. Um, the, there might be something that's okay in some society that we would say is unethical from a universal point of view. The word actually for conventional morality in, in Pali also means idea. It's not something that's deeply felt about, it's not a vision about the way things are, it's an idea to help things function. Whereas uh, natural morality, um, Bhante calls, an integral part of that eternal and immutable order of the universe, simultaneously physical and mental, natural and supernatural, which is one aspect of the connotation of the all-comprehensive reality termed Dharma, in accordance with which one ma man must live to attain the highest. So I'll say that first bit again. It's not very easy to quote this survey, that's the only thing. The sentences are really long as well. So he calls natural morality an integral part of that eternal and immutable order of the universe. So there's something about the natural morality which is the way things are. And ethical behaviour emerges from that. It emerges from um, an understanding of the way things are, in the, an understanding of reality or, or the nature of the universe. It, understand, it emerges, natural morality emerges from a vision of reality. And that vision is that we see people not as fixed and separate, but as part of the same whole, part of humanity as one, um, being conditions for one another's growth or otherwise, seeing that all beings are impermanent, and seeing that all beings desire to grow, to transcend their current states like lotuses emerging from the mud. So when we see that, and this is the vision of the Buddha, the Buddha's um, in his enlightenment, the eye of the Dharma opened, the eye of the Buddha opened, and he saw all beings growing towards the light, like lotuses, growing from the mud of existence up to the light. And when we see humanity like that, we naturally have empathy for the life and the growth in others. And that's where natural morality comes. It's not a kind of idea about what we should do to fit in. It's, an, it's a resonance with life itself. It's a resonance with the way things are. Um, it's a resonance with seeing humanity as one and seeing all beings as living and growing beings of which we're a part. So if we could surrender to that sense, if we could surrender to that kind of deeper understanding of the way reality actually is, rather than an idea about what we should or shouldn't do, um, then we'll be able to make creative choices. So our lives will embody that, will embody that natural morality, um, that sense of um, beauty and openness in a way. And I think everyone's lives will embody that different, differently. Um, the choices that we make will be different uh, according to the circumstances that we're in and who we are. But I think we have to start from that response, start from the natural morality, 
not starting from an idea about what we should or shouldn't do. We have to start with our own response to, it, to what is of value and let our choices flow from there. And in a way that, well, the order is based on, uh, or partly based on a, um, a principle that commitment is primary and lifestyle is secondary. But I think it's more like lifestyle is an expression of commitment. If we can get in touch with what we most deeply value and um, let our life flow, our life choices flow from that, there's a kind of surrendering to one's higher ideals. Um, and it's not a kind of heavy, I should be doing something or other. It's a, it's a surrendering to one's higher ideals. And that will be expressed in our lifestyle and what choices we make in our lifestyle. And from that basis of really understanding natural morality, of really having that vision about humanity, we can work together as a vibrant mass movement. So Sangharachta does recommend living and working together, at least temporarily. And I think we can, you know, there's the role of team-based right livelihoods and the team role of, of communities, which I think are very important, and I know some of you here have benefited from them. But there's also the role of the Buddhist centre itself, which um, can be compared to an oasis in the desert, or as Sangharachta says, a garden in the wilderness. And that really is like that. The Buddhist center really can be a garden in the wilderness. A Sangha can be a garden in the wilderness. It's not about building, it's about uh, people coming together. Remember once, we used to close Sheffield Buddhist Center over Christmas time. And then we decided that we were going to open it and have a meditation and reflection morning from 10 to 1 every day over Christmas and the New Year. And it was like people really were saying, this is an oasis. You know, this kind of kind of desperate. And they're really popular. And then we just thought, actually, we're thinking about this all the wrong, wrong way around. We're thinking about Buddhist centres as an adult education centre. And that's not how they are at all. They're a centre of community. And um, why abandon people when they need us most? <laughs> and we may have to rely on that community, um, that's, this uh, sense of community revolving around the Sangha because we're going to have to live in a very, very radically different way and we're going to have to support each other in a simple lifestyle and we're going to have to make decisions as a community. We might have to rely on those oasis in, in the desert, those gardens in the wilderness in a way that we haven't before. And the Sangha can become a force for goodness in the world. You know, that is the ideal of the order and it doesn't live always live up to it. But the potential is definitely there. Um, all the things are in place, are in place that are needed for the creation of a real positive spiritual community. And I think we also have to have the courage to, to, um, to have confidence that the Dharma has something to offer in the world and is offering the world something, a path of ethics, meditation and wisdom, um, a path to happiness, a path of awareness and love. Um, the, the Dharma is a force for goodness in the world and a force of non-violence. In, in the same talk, uh, Sangharachita says, ever since the dawn of history, perhaps from the very beginning of the present cosmic cycle itself, two great principles have been at work in the world, the principle of violence and the principle of non-violence or love. The principle of violence finds expression in force and fraud as well as in such things as oppression, exploitation, intimidation and blackmail. The principle of non-violence finds expression in friendliness and openness, 
as well as in such things as gentleness and helpfulness and the giving of encouragement, sympathy and appreciation. So I do believe that the Tama is a part of the, the principle of non-violence finding expression in the world. And I think I'm part of that. That's what I aspire to be, is part of that principle of non-violence. Because those principles are always at work in the world, but they're also at work in the individual. And every time we choose to act in non-violence and love, we're part of that principle of love that's at work in the world. So we can choose in every moment what we um, give our attention to, what we act out um, personally, but also as a community. We can choose to be part of the principle of non-violence in the world. And then the Dharma is more than happiness. It's more than even just sorting out its world, the world on its own level. So one of the points that Sangharachita makes in Buddhism, World Peace and Nuclear Wars, he said we might sort out nuclear weapons. We might even sort out world peace. But um, we haven't sorted out death. We still face the problem of death. And that's where the Dharma can also re make a difference. It's not just about sorting the world out on its own level. It's also about liberating people from the whole structure of samsara altogether. It's about liberating people from the forces of greed, hatred and delusion. So just end by mentioning another sutta, which is a sutta after the wheel-turning monarch sutta which is a sutta, a Ganya sutta, on the knowledge of beginnings. And it's another kind of parable about a vision of the world. And uh, in that vision, world systems come in and out of being um, endlessly. World systems coming in and out, out of being. Uh, it's an endless and infinite systems. Universes unfolding. Universes, universes turning back. And the whole thing is a bound up with the results of karma, with um, good actions leading to good results and bad actions leading to bad results. But within that, this whole kind of flow of suffering and universes coming in and out of existings, um, there's also the possibility of liberation. There's the possibility of um, destroying greed, hatred and delusion, of laying down the burden, of doing what needs to be done and attaining the highest goal. So what the Buddha is really saying is, you know, in, samsara is inherently unsatisfactory, it's inherently impermanent. Things go well, something comes into being, and then the conditions for it coming into being cease and it ceases. And this is happening all the time. Um, but within that universe, it's possible to be liberated. And the refrain that runs through that particular sutta is, the Dharma is the best thing for people in this life and the next as well. So maybe we can remember that. The Dharma is the best thing for people in this life and the next as well. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 